2: In matters of style, swim with the current. In matters of principle, stand like a rock. Is a quote from Thomas Jefferson, a founding father of the United States who was most famous for writing the Declaration of Independence and serving as the third president of the United States of America. I thought the quote was apt in describing our guest today, a person who grew up in an Australian country town who became the first in his family to attend university and built a career in the Big Smoke before being tapped on the shoulder by a family friend join a board of a country building society that with his help over the next 30 years grew 100 times to become the fifth largest bank in Australia. Our guest today is the chairman of Bendigo and Adelaide Bank, Robert Johansson. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners Executive Search and Board Advisory Firm. In this episode, Robert shares with us his thoughts on banking today and asks us, do we feel that our relationships with banks are meaningful or are we simply an outcome of an algorithm? We cover the impact of the Hain Royal Commission and the importance of trust and learn how Bendigo and Adelaide Bank was founded by people shut out of the banking system and how today keeping themselves grounded and engaged in the community has stood them out from the pack. We explore the banking landscape 10 years from now and discover that market share is up for grabs and ask who will be the winners? Is it the four pillar banks, the multinationals, the fintechs or others with the smartest technology? Finally, we are left with some thinking to do. Is the level of household debt in the economy reaching a tipping point? Has the availability of credit led to a significant stretch in wealth inequality and are we looking to monetary policy to do too much hard work? So sit back and enjoy this thought-provoking and very wide-ranging conversation. Robert, welcome to
0: the show. Thank you very much. So it all began in Bendigo but it didn't it begin in Sweden? Well my, uh, my ancestors had lived in Bendigo for four or five generations so yeah, they were from Sweden, but they were also from Ireland and England and Germany, all sorts of places. Bendigo in the 19th century was a multicultural melting pot of the kind we uh, we now imagine as a whole new modern thing. But at that time, Bendigo was uh, was the most sort of dynamic, multicultural, economic engine. Um, that almost the country's ever seen. It was an extraordinary place.
1: So your grandmother or your great-grandmother met your great-grandfather who's what, jumped off the boat?
0: My great-great-grandmother was uh, a young woman who'd been born in this wild mining town. She'd gone to Sydney for a holiday, which in the 1880s was uh, no mean effort. No. And as a 25-year-old young woman, she brought a Swedish sailor back, back to Bendigo with her. That's Relative, my background. Relatively scandalous at the time.
1: Robert. I'm sure it was. So you grew up in
0: Bendigo. Yeah, I'm. I was. Um, my family was from Bendigo. I went down to Melbourne to go to university, um, but yeah, I'm from the town.
1: So Bendigo Bank, well-established brand name in this country. What does it actually stand
0: for, Robert? It's well-established now, but uh, thirty thirty-one years ago. It was a little country building society, of which there were a lot around Australia. We forget that what we now recognise as banks are a relatively modern development. Uh, Most domestic banking or savings activities weren't done in the trading banks that were the main engines of economic activity. So building societies played a really important role in funding local people People who were otherwise disenfranchised from the financial system uh, to do their saving, to buy houses, to fund local businesses. They were a really important part of the, uh, of the economy.
1: So when you grew up in Bendigo, was it easy? Was it fairly tough? And what did the local banking establishment mean to you?
0: Well, Bendigo, as I said, in the 19th century was this huge engine of economic wealth. But by the 1950s, That had uh, shrunk and deteriorated. Building societies still played a really important role in funding local housing and uh, savings activity. Both my grandparents were people who bought houses funded by the local building societies. They weren't people who would have been able to get money from the trading banks at the time. So you went to university, Robert. When did
1: you start thinking about, I guess, the career in financial services and broader... Investment in banking than then
0: banking. Like many of my generation, I was the first person to go to university from my family. As I say, that was not unusual. Um, a lot of my friends were similarly the first of the generation. I went to university, uh, studied law, decided I didn't want to become a lawyer, uh, went and did an MBA, came back, um, and then worked as a investment banker, uh, and then, a few years later, an old friend who who was a director of the local Bendigo Building Society right. asked would I join the board. At that stage, Bendigo Building Society, we were the remaining building society in central Victoria, but you know, we were on today's system a very small, uh, insignificantly small institution for the local group. So what was his ambitions in those days? I was responding to a a request by a family friend, would I join this board, which was interesting at the time, so I did that. Been there for a long time, Robert. Looking back, yeah, I have, and it's been a fantastic journey for me. Um, And there's been huge changes in the industry and in the institution. Where do you see banking these
1: days, Robert? Because you you obviously went for, I guess, personal reasons, uh, the society. And giving back to the community, have have we lost sight of the role
0: of the bank? As I said earlier, um, generations ago, banking was for the elite. Really, enfranchisement uh, for financial services is one of the big changes that happened during the twentieth century. Banking became available to most people in the community, whereas at the start of the twentieth century, that wasn't so at all. So we now take for granted. Um, access to financial services as one of those sort of fundamental, fundamental building blocks of our economic and social life. Um, but that wasn't the case uh, early in the century. So uh, the role of building societies was really important in the development of those um, of those economies and, and societies at the time,
1: and the building society meant that if I had a, a reasonable role or a reasonable job in those days, I had a chance of getting
0: a mortgage. Yeah, in ways that, as I said, the banking system really didn't provide access to people.
1: And where do you think that that permeates today for
0: the young, young up and comers or those out in you know rural Australia? Well, today uh, banking is ubiquitous, okay. so we can all. And we all do. Most, well, Virtually everybody now accesses their banking through their mobile phone. Savings and loans are available uh, in ways that my, my parents and my grandparents could not have imagined. Um, and so the role of banks as the engine of the economy has become hugely changed from where it was. And now banks are looked on as the as we've seen from the way the Reserve Bank is managing interest rates, for example, they're they're setting interest rates to generate levels of economic activity to maintain economic activity and growth in the economy in ways that, as I said, previous generations would not have looked to the banks as the way of doing those sorts of things. The previous generations, Robert,
1: would have actually deposited their money into those banks. Am I going to deposit my money into the banks
0: based on what the Reserve Bank is encouraging at the stage when it to interest rates? Exactly. Um, uh, my parents and my grandparents all knew that they only had access to the system if they were able to demonstrate frugality, uh, savings, uh, uh, personal, personal financial discipline in ways that now we just uh, ignore or take for granted. I think that we've not really got to grips with the uh, implications of the kind of uh, cost-of-money systems that we're now setting up. People like you and me, Greg, yep. uh, those of us who uh, got involved in the housing markets 20 and 30 and 40 years ago... Well, not, for, been not 40 years ago, Robert, only 20, 30 maybe hugely beneficial for us in terms of the value of the assets we've got. But for those of us, you know, like our children and grandchildren, how they're going to be able to get into those markets, uh, it's not clear um, because we've seen as a result of very cheap money asset values going up hugely. So big shifts in in the ways of allocating wealth um, and implications for um, the health of the uh, society going forward.
1: So as chairman of a bank, you've had a tremendous experience across the market. Robert, what do you see as being the key milestones over the last 15, 20 years in banking? And then where do you see, broader terms, where, where are we going in the sense of, do I trust the bank? What's it going to offer me?
0: And what's the rollout of a bank? Is there going to be a branch anymore? So the uh, you look back over those... 30 years that I've been involved in uh, effectively retail banking, okay. there's no doubt that the changes that uh, the Hawke-Keating government in opening up the financial system was one of the big revolutions that we've seen. It, it made available finance and credit to most people in the society in ways that, as I said, previous generations couldn't have imagined. Uh, and that was a hugely liberating. It opened up a whole lot of economic activity uh, and part of the great wealth creation that, that we saw in the earlier parts of our, of our life. Yes. Uh, part of the implications of that, that opening up of credit, that general availability of credit, mm-hmm. of course, came home to roost with the financial crisis in the mid-2000s. Right. Um, suddenly the implications of free, of, of relatively free credit, of, of relatively generous credit being available uh, in terms of uh, implications for financial health of individuals became apparent. We can't keep going on lending people without regard to what might happen uh, uh You know, that became apparent. Mm -hmm. And so the great collapse, if you like, of 2007, um, the credit crunch of 2007, was really, I think, realising the implications of that explosion in credit that we'd seen over the previous generation. So now we've got a system where governments are hugely invested in making credit available because... That's, provide, that's provided a lot of the engine for economic growth that we've seen yep. and that we seem to want to continue to grow forever. But on the other hand, uh, we've seen uh, people who have, have already got existing wealth seen the value of that wealth increase significantly, mostly in terms of housing prices. Yeah, okay. But now the prospect of a generation of people being unable to find their way into those markets so we're seeing a stretch in uh in wealth inequality in ways that our parents really wouldn't have understood you know so now the big debate is about how can we how can we generate a society that's more equal Mm -hmm. where the implications of that are less severe on the new generations Um, And we've got a banking system that, as I said, used to be a couple of generations ago was the preserve of the moneyed minority, but it's now um, essential to do almost anything. So we all expect to be able to pay for our cups of coffee with our mobile phone and have immediate access to credit wherever we are in the world, Whenever we want it, yep. That's unimaginable to our parents and and previous generations. But if we don't have access to that, it's almost impossible to imagine how you function on a day to day basis. So how how do we deal with those sorts of two sorts of contradictory things? Um, and I think we're working through the implications of that. So we've now got a banking system in Australia. That's the uh, really, in some ways, is the envy of much of the world. It's stable, it's secure, it survived the crisis without any real implications for savers. Um, and we, we all take for granted, as I said, access to this system in ways that our previous generations could only have imagined. But, um, but the implications of that for how we manage these institutions is, of course, profound. So we've now got a level of regulatory involvement, uh, intrusion even, in the day-to-day operations of banks that we wouldn't have imagined some time ago. And people are calling those institutions to account, such as we've seen through the Royal Commission, uh, in ways too that we wouldn't have thought of some years before. And was it warranted, Robert? Well, I think if if banks are now such an important part of the day-to-day life of every individual, we'd be foolish to think that governments aren't going to stay that involved. Mm. Um, If banks were just uh, a vehicle for a minority part of the society to do a kind of narrow part of economic activity, maybe... You wouldn't expect that the governments and the social system would get involved in the way they have. But I think it's inevitable now that we're as important as we are. If we look at social
1: responsibility and maybe the new generation, the way they're thinking, is it going to be the return of the community bank? And if so, are you guys capturing that opportunity?
0: Well, I think that the uh, we've already, in a sense, the intrusion by regulators, governments, the political system in the day-to-day activities of the banks is symptomatic of, of that. So it's not a matter of saying, oh, uh, we should go back to where we were. Banking is too important, too important a part of day-to-day life yeah. to let uh, it go back to not being part of the day-to-day concern of the political process and of, uh, of the regulatory system. So, no, we're not going to go back to those things. But when we were children, Greg, we used to think that the local bank manager was someone who we needed to know and who we were... uh, We could convince that that person was someone who could provide us credit. These days, uh, in the world of artificial intelligence and big data, you don't need a local bank manager. Someone can... Uh, in a nanosecond, provide an analysis of your spending patterns over the past five years. We don't need the local bank manager. Um, All that can be done through your mobile phone and big data. What's the role of institutions then in a world where those sorts of things are, are effectively the major intermediaries in this economic relationship? They're the sorts of things that I think we've all got to get – we're all kind of coming to grips with. If, if Amazon and Google know so much about us, who needs a bank? Who needs a bank to provide us with uh, individual credit assessment when those things are available? And, and then what's the role of banks? Yeah if that's the place of uh, of that sort of intelligence. Well, you're chairman of one of them, so where do you see the longer-term role, Robert? Well, I, st- I think that there's still a role for institutions where uh, individuals feel that they're meaningful. There's a role for institution where people know that they're not simply an outcome of an algorithm, uh, where conversations can be had about individual motivations, individual values. So for us, uh, we've got a very good business in teaming with uh, with partnering with local communities and local businesses, uh, where we say, you come and do your business with us. Um, as a result of you doing business with us in partnership with your local community, mm. Surpluses are generated. You make up your own mind about where you put those surpluses. And uh, it's no surprise that those local partners, those local communities put that money, for example, into things like local sporting clubs. Uh, In Victoria, there's hardly a football club or a netball court that doesn't have a Bendigo Bank sponsorship. Because that's what local communities see as one of the important local activities uh, that they think surpluses can go to generate because they're generating local senses of community and uh, involvement. But those local communities have gone on to do all sorts of other interesting things. So, some of them, for example, have funded local health centres. Some of them have funded local childcare centres. Right, okay. Some of them have funded local uh, aged care facilities. There's a town, a couple of towns I know, yep. where the community banks with their surpluses have funded aged care facilities because people were being exported to the local big town effectively to die. Right. Um, but with the bit of local seed capital... They've been able to attract funding from state governments, from federal governments. They've built aged care facilities. People are staying in the town now in their old age. These are really the kind of glues of what local communities are all about. So uh, where you can have a local entity that's capturing that value, deploying those surplus funds back into the local community, those local communities become richer, more prosperous. And we know that if local communities are prosperous and we're servicing those local communities as an essential part of that prosperity, then we've got a chance of prospering too. Uh, Banks don't prosper when the communities in which they operate become impoverished. It's only when they're prosperous that banks prosper too. I think that kind of insight which is so obvious when you say it yeah, right. that it sort of seems trite but it's the local identity the local connection that the banking system in its drive for scale uh you know, scale and growth yep. um is kind of forgotten so we think in this new world yep. of local people being empowered by technology yep to make decisions for themselves locally, there's a huge opportunity for our organisation. So if I'm uh, banking with one of the
1: four pillar banks, am I going to be persuaded by that argument to shift my money, and it's not easy as you know, Robert, into uh, Bendigo and Adelaide?
0: Yeah, the system has made it difficult for people to change banks. It's become incredibly cumbersome and problematic to simply change from one bank to another. But this new world of, uh, of digitally enabled societies yeah. is making that easier. And this new uh, uh, new system that the federal government is requiring where they're saying the data about you as a customer, you own, and it's up to you as to whether it's transferred to someone else it's not held by the institution it's not the property of the institution but it's owned by the customer so they're in they're prescribing rules about the easy exchange of data between systems Uh, I think that opens up all sorts of possibilities for empowering individuals to let them be able to use this technology to make these decisions for themselves in ways that, as an industry, we have had uh, a vested interest in making difficult. So that's an opportunity for us. And we think that, um, that our position in the market as a brand that's highly trusted, Absolutely. Uh, highly regarded, but with still a relatively small market share that if we can get the technology uh, opportunity right, then we've got the ability to grow our business considerably. So it's all coming down to technology, Robert? Technology uh, is the most important factor in banking, I think, for the next generation. 10 years ago, when we thought about the banking system, we thought, "Us, oh, it's all about economies of scale. Yeah. So. Um, And we were part of this ourselves. We took over or merged with a whole lot of smaller partners to give ourselves scale to be able to get to grips with things like advertising, dealing with the fixed cost of regulation, all those sorts of things. I think what technology is doing is now is fundamentally altering those equations. So I suspect we will see less of what was traditional mergers and acquisitions as ways of building position uh, in, the, in banking on financial services. It's really gonna be driven by technology. And we're seeing that already. Huge investment in the FinTechs of this world. People who are able to deliver uh, very quick, easy, uh, re- customer-sensitive responses to particular needs. And we have invested in that ourselves. We've got a digital bank called UpBank. We've got a, a, a home loan approval process online. We've teamed with a group called TikTok, where for the right customer, you can get a home loan approved in 20 minutes, um, all online. This is very smart technology, but which makes all that investment that we've all made in systems... Uh, in branches, uh, in third-party distribution networks, uh, you know, that's a lot of investment that I suspect we're gonna to have to get to grips with how we deal with that before too long.
1: And there's, also, there's always lots of sort of scuttle bug out there, Robert, and discussions around one or two of your competitors potentially merging with you. Um, and also where would the big four go? Where they also look to merge one or two between those two? The cost of doing it. Is, it, is it worth it as opposed to what you're talking about?
0: Well, uh, the costs of dealing with legacy systems is one of the big costs that the existing banking system is still getting to grips with. Right. Um, I mean, all the banks in Australia have this problem of dealing with their legacy systems, and yet we've got these new emerging fintechs. The cost of setting up a new bank buying a technology suite off the shelf are not that great right uh, and you look at go to the UK look at Monzo Bank and some of those new competitors it's challenging for those of us who are in the system how to deal with that but so that's the kind of change in the economics of the industry that I think the whole all of us are trying to get to grips with okay so then what's the difference Roberts between
1: one of the big four being just as smart as you guys are investing
0: in this technology,
1: and you guys being maybe a little bit smaller and more agile, you might argue, with that community feel. Am I still going to shift my money from one large organisation to that community feel
0: when actually I'm not going to walk into any of your branches anyway? Well, it depends why you're doing it. So if the question is who's got the smartest technology, then okay. uh, in a sense that's, that's up for grabs. It's between us, the fintechs, and the major banks. Um, And where you've got a whole banking system that's dealing with the sunk costs of all those legacy systems, that's a a problem. Um, Are they going to be able to cope with that change uh, that uh, the, the fintechs are able to cope with because they don't have those legacy systems? So you roll it forward for 10 years, Robert? Where where do you
1: see the banking landscape? Is there still going to be four pillar banks? Is there going to be a merger with Bendigo and Adelaide and someone else? Where where would you see the play?
0: I I think it's up for grabs. Do you really? I do. I I mean, I think it's unlikely we we won't have a couple, at least, major internationally significant institutions that do most of the day-to-day banking. But whether there's four or whether there's two... I think won't be a result of decisions made by uh, competition regulators. It'll be as a result of decisions made by consumers as to whether they do their banking with the fintechs, with players like us, whose brands they see as representing something different, or whether they go with one of the majors. So I think there's a instability in uh, the delivery of financial services, which we haven't seen certainly since the days when Paul Keating and Bob Hawke fundamentally changed the banking landscape in Australia.
1: And do I still feel proud of walking into bank as an employee, Robert, with all
0: you know, the discussions since the Hayne report, et cetera? Uh, a lot don't, of course. A lot don't feel that uh, what they've been involved in um, is something that they are proud of. Uh, for us, I think we can feel proud of okay. what we've been able to achieve. Our small bank uh, has a, a recognition. We have a customer advocacy level that the major banks can only dream of, frankly. Um, and that's, I think, partly because we've tried, we've worked very hard at staying very grounded in our relationships with our customers. You know, we've been very good at at getting new technologies to service those customers. But in our relationships, we've stayed a lot more grounded. Uh, We haven't let issues like uh, executive remuneration get people carried away uh, and doing things. It's not not that we're without fault by no means, Mm -hmm. Um, but we've worked hard at staying related to our customers uh, that I think the system has not done so what's the discussion in the boardroom these days, Robert? Where Where is the focus being spent? Well, it's dealing with those issues. Now, I think as a result of, not just as a result of the Royal Commission, but as a result of the issues that have been made public by the Royal Commission, uh, we've all had to grapple with this, ro- William, what is our role in the modern economy? What is the right way for us to think about our relationships with our customers, with our staff, um, with other parts of the whole society. And there's this, as I've tried to describe, this huge technological uh, revolution that's going on. Um, So customers now, as I said, expect to be able to deal with us instantly, seamlessly, wherever they are in the world, whatever time of day or night it is their expectations that getting into grips with that mm. has been really important. But thinking about what your role in society really is has been part of uh, of what we've had to do as well. You know, The, the banking industry was the vehicle of choice um, coming out of the GFC that, ah, let's get more credit flowing to keep the economy running. Yeah. So the banks were almost... Uh, given carte blanche to keep the economy running by this credit. Well, that's had its implications for the way we deal with customers uh, and the way that they manage their own wealth. And I think we're now starting to come to grips with that.
1: Where do you see the the economy, Robert, with the recent cuts in interest rates?
0: Well, I, I mean, I, I, I'm concerned that we're looking to monetary policy to do too much hard work. Okay. That we think that by making money cheaper, so promoting the use of more credit, that we're going to encourage economic activity to keep a level of economic growth going Mm -hmm. that I think is frankly unrealistic. Um, So I'm, I'm very concerned about the levels of household debt that the economy has. I'm very concerned about the, uh, the disparities of income and wealth amongst different groups within the economy. I think we're not yet to grips with those sorts of issues. So are we living beyond our means? If we're expecting that credit is going to provide the mechanism without any implications in the long course, I think we are. Um, I think we've all got used to a level of prosperity... Um, that previous generations could only have imagined uh, or barely dreamt of and it worries me that we're setting up expectations that we simply won't be able to maintain. And those expectations, how
1: will they hit the bank when people don't come in and pay the debts?
0: Well um, we're a very conservative institution and we have been able to maintain the business at a very, you know, we've got very low levels of bad debts. I think at the moment my concern is not so much in the banking system, but it's in the non-banking credit systems that we're, we're generating. So, for example, you know, there's a lot of uh, short-term retail credit being provided through non-regulated banks yes. that I think we're really yet to work out the implications of, and that concerns me a lot.
1: You've obviously, as chair, got to appoint over directors, and you've also got to hire and fire CEOs. Has anything changed in the last 15, 20 years, Robert, in your mind, in what you're looking for in terms sense of capabilities?
0: Oh, I think the role of banks, as I've tried to describe, is a far broader um, sort of thing than uh, I, than we would have thought of 20 years ago. Okay. And so I'm, I'll am i be succeeded um, as the chair of Bendigo Adelaide Bank by a woman whose background is technology. Okay. That's not what you would have predicted, I think, 15 years ago, um, but that's become an absolutely crucial part of the suite of skills that you need around an organisation. Now, that's not the only thing that she brings to the job, but it's, it's, the reason, it's one of the reasons why uh, she was identified as being someone who could take this organisation through the challenges of the next generation. We're kind of publicly accountable, uh, publicly visible in ways that I don't think previous generations expected. The inspection of the operations of banks that we saw through the Royal Commission Mm. is a level of private scrutiny that I don't think bankers 25 years ago would have thought was imaginable. Exactly, yeah. But um, as I say, the role of banks in the economy and in the society has changed so much that on reflection, it's obvious as to why people are that interested. What could Because we are that crucial to the day-to-day lives of every person in Australia. So we shouldn't be surprised that suddenly we find ourselves subject to that sort of scrutiny. So uh, what you now need to be on the board of a bank is a kind of preparedness to be open to that sort of scrutiny uh, which as I say previous generations wouldn't have thought was necessary or appropriate. And I think institutions now need as directors people who are prepared to be advocates for the organisation. People look for institutions like banks to be responsible and play meaningful roles in society uh, in ways that 20 or 30 years ago you thought, no, no, your job is just to make money. That's not good enough anymore. Now people expect us to be responsible members of society making a contribution to to the good life in, of people in societies. So you need now as directors people who are prepared to take responsibility uh, for the public role of those institutions and be prepared to be questioned about that. So issues like, you know, climate change. Yeah, okay. Issues like gender diversity,
1: yep.
0: ethnic diversity, LGBT uh, issues. They're all issues that in a way we're now seen as being responsible for, which, you know, I don't think 20 years ago directors would have thought was part of their job so if you're going to become a director of Bendigo and Adelaide Bank this is part of what you're responsible for. How does that permeate through not just the directors but down through the uh, the executives Robert? Certainly younger executives we don't need convince them that this is part of what they're responsible for that's what they expect they only want to work for organisations that take those sorts of social roles seriously. Um, so it's not – I don't think it's been us having to convince layers of our organisation that these are part of their job. They've been leading us in some ways in this debate.
1: What about the other debate, Robert, which is around remuneration? And you know, a lot of other companies made those same sort of values but probably only get to pay half as much as the average banker yet still doing the same amount of hours, et cetera. So what's your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, well, every dollar that you have – As a director, every spare dollar, if you like, you've got to make a decision about where you're going to put it. Do I invest it in customer relationships? Do I invest it with my employees to look after them? Or do I invest it in my shareholders to keep them happy? And in a way, uh, being a director is umpiring that constant uh, debate or argument about where the marginal dollar goes if you like. Yes. For the past 20 years shareholders have been winning that argument uh, and so we have had a preoccupation with rewarding shareholders and with the managers of shareholders funds, that's the institutions. I think what we've seen through the, through the Hain Commission into misconduct, is the people are now saying, no, that's gone too far. The interests, the financial interests of shareholders and executives mm-hmm. being incentivised to reward shareholders, mm-hmm. that's gone too far. We need to pull back on that. Now, our organisation, I think, has always had a different balance than others. And indeed, that, I think, came out in the evidence to the Royal Commission. Uh, So what you're seeing is a readjustment as to where um, that marginal dollar, if you like, needs to be reinvested. And what you're seeing is a huge reinvestment in looking after some of the interests of customers.
1: What about those investors that, look, I don't care about that. I just want my dividend, Robert. Move my dividend up.
0: I think that's that's yet to be worked its way through. So we're seeing, for example, um, the regulator, APRA, yes. is saying, no, you cannot pay bonuses based purely on financial outcomes. A number of institutions are saying, hold on, we're not going to approve any remuneration that doesn't make that as your number one priority. Uh, now, the implications of all that are yet to be worked through. Right, well, where is the
1: brand in the sense of the Australian psyche?
0: So our brand is recognised, in fact, way beyond its presence uh, in the marketplace. So a lot more people recognise us as being a valuable brand, a trusted brand, than actually deal with us. So we get net promoter score... Results way beyond the expectations of virtually all the other competitors that we have in the marketplace. But the question for us is, can we translate that yeah. into day-to-day business? And as I said, that's that's now being that's now being worked out in these questions about technology. For us, the big issue is. So this is a brand trusted brand that's depended very much on the identity of the brand with personal service and with customer relationships. How does that play out in a world where virtually all your customers only want to deal with you via the mobile phone? What's the role of a brand where all you are is dealing with someone at the end of a mobile phone? Where does that leave us? We've got some work to do. But but I think... I think that those issues of trust, of dependability, not so much when everything's going well, but come the day when all that credit that we talked of earlier, yeah. the implications of dealing with all that credit come home to roost, and it'll, it'll happen. Who can people trust and rely upon to deal with them fairly And that's, I think, when people will realise that dealing with an organisation like ours, an organisation that's really grounded in ordinary, everyday values of people in their communities, of an understanding that it's only when customers and their communities prosper that we as an institution can prosper. That's when... Uh, I think we will do, uh, our value will be really recognised. And
1: does that really really play to what you just said? Because you hear about that, Robert, and it sounds like the good old days many, many years ago. Are those values still, you know, if I'm out there, I've got a business, I'm hitting the wall, I go and see my local branch manager, are you guys really going to say you're number 110 in the queue,
0: bad luck, or are you actually really going to sit down and help me out? All I can say is that we've been in existence now for over 160 years. We were founded by people who were shut out of the banking system as it then existed. Yep. We've only survived that long because we've been able to maintain that kind of connection with customers. We've grown steadily. In my uh, 30 years of involvement with the organisation, we've grown 100 times. 30 years ago, you wouldn't have imagined you wouldn't have imagined 30 years ago that we'd be the fifth biggest retail bank in the country. I'm confident that with the group that now is on the board and the group that's now running the organisation, that without getting too carried away by the need to grow at any particular sort of rate, but that that steady growth, that level of importance to the community will continue to grow and that we've got a really crucial role in the society for the next 30 years. How do you keep your execs granted? Um, We don't pay them on short-term bonuses, uh, according to simply sales. Uh, Many of them still live in communities where they are identifiable on a day-to-day basis when they walk down the street. Uh, They don't live in offices, on high floors of buildings where, where employees, much less customers, know who they are or where they're accountable. So it is a matter of being grounded and accountable in those sorts of ways. Um, every day we deal with over 350 different communities who we partner with to provide local banking. Dealing with those people on a day-to-day basis keeps you grounded uh, in ways that I think uh, a lot of the rest of the industry has forgotten. So that's why I'm confident that the next generation will be able to deal with this disintermediation by technology that I've described, but still have a very strong, grounded business makes that trade-off between all the different stakeholder groups and builds the business for the prosperity of their communities for the future
1: so how do you determine success and failure in your mind Robert
0: well um, I mean there's lots of measures of success mm. uh, the fact that customers value what we do um, are prepared to recommend us that's one value of success mm the fact that we've got an employee workforce that's very engaged, that feels that they're owners and responsible for the day-to-day business. So we have employee engagement levels uh, that on any measure are very impressive. Yeah. We've got a shareholder group that's a very diverse shareholder group, but many of whom are third and fourth and fifth generation shareholders. Right. Okay. My daughter, for example, is, I think, a fifth-generation shareholder uh, in this organisation. So she feels ownership uh, of this organisation in ways that um, a, an institution won't. So they're, they're all reasons why um, being grounded uh, has not been such for us such a problem. When you catch up with your staff and you review where the future's
1: going... What's the feedback you're getting from your employees?
0: Well, we have uh, we have employees, so we now have about seven and a half thousand people who work for us across Australia. Many of them work in the in the community banks in the branches. Um, but each year, uh, one of the jobs I've really enjoyed as chair has been giving long service awards. So uh, if you work for our organisation, for 10 years, and then in increments of five years after that, we have a ceremony each year where we acknowledge their contribution. And this year, I think we gave, we acknowledged that um, over 600 people had been working with our organisation for 10, 15, 20, 25, many of them for 30 and 35 years. So a lot of them are very long serving employees. These people are not shy in telling me what they think is going on. Um, these are people who really feel an ownership in the organisation. Uh, and for me, it's been a fantastic privilege to be able to get to know them. So they're, they're the ones who are our shock troops, if you like, in dealing with all this change that's going on. They see it. They're not resistant to the change because they too are changing Um uh, and in a way, they're our they're our strongest advocates.
1: Are they worried, Robert, with the, with the the whole emphasis on AI and where the
0: world is going? Uh, well, the, but they understand that we've got to get to grips with it, because they too see their customers having to get to grips with these sorts of things. So, and they're our customers too. So, just as they f- enjoy the facility of dealing with through a mobile phone, so they understand why everyone else wants to. And they're as frustrated as anyone is by some of the technology legacy systems. They're as frustrated by a lot of the bureaucracy that we've got to get to cope with. They're not resistant to the change. As I say, in some ways, they're the strongest advocates for the change. Is there an overabundance of uh, red tape, Robert? As I say, I think we um, it's this balance between, on the one hand, us being accountable in a public way uh, that previous generations were not, uh, being accountable for behaviours. Because we're important in the day-to-day economic lives of people, which is why we've had this huge growth in accountability systems. um, And it's managing that that we've got to get to grips with. Sure, we all get frustrated by the red tape and those sorts of things. we're all frustrated as we negotiate yet another round of new regulations, yep. and, um, but I think it's understanding why that's happening is the best way of dealing with it. And what do you look for now
1: in um, chief execs? Do you think, the, the, as you said, you, you touched on social responsibility and the broader thinking, but you read the papers every day of the week
0: and the appointments in chief exec land out there. What, what are you seeing? I think the, role, the chief executive roles are very difficult, as you know, as we know, they're they're accountable, they're responsible, and they're visible mm. in ways that um, that wasn't expected in previous generations. So you need people who, on the one hand, have uh, great vision, ambition, but on the other hand, are very grounded, secure in themselves able to deal with all the uncertainties they've got to cope with on a day-to-day basis and be able to thrive in jobs that are fundamentally very lonely jobs. Um, There's no-one else that they can turn to. Sure, there are boards and there are chairs, but we're holding them accountable too. So these are very difficult jobs. It's no wonder that the attrition rates of... Chief executives are, are what they are.
1: So how do you see your role, Robert, as a chair? Are you a coach, a supporter? How do how do you play
0: your role? Well, it's a lot of roles, isn't it? Mm. Uh, yeah, you're a coach. You are, you've got to be, in a sense, the strongest advocate but also the fiercest critic. Uh, uh, you've got to be someone who backs and supports the chief executive until the moment you assassinate them. <laughs> Very true. uh, 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 You've got to be someone who the rest of the organisation can turn to and trust and rely upon. But on the other hand, you can't be the person who uh, subverts or white ants the person or the people who've got the day to day responsibility for running the business. They're difficult roles.
1: What are your thoughts in regards to the ad or the, I guess the uh, the last few years, the advent of more professional directors who are on three, four, five boards, compared to you know your experience on nowhere near as many as those.
0: Well, I think it's actually less uh, today. Uh, we're seeing fewer people playing that sort of professional director role across a whole. Who just seen this as a portfolio sort of job? I think the demands on directors now mean that that purely dispassionate, professional director function isn't really uh, acceptable anymore. It's a more complicated uh, role. whereas, as I said, there's a whole lot of roles that that they need to play. Um, but uh, in our organisation, we get a huge advantage from having a number of directors who look across these problems across a range of industries. So a lot of these issues about technology, for example, they're not peculiar to banking. They're also found in uh, energy industries. They're found found in all sorts of different sorts of industries. This um, balance for how you're going to deal with customers in this technologically enabled, empowered world. So there's a huge advantage in people who are seeing these problems across array, a broad array of different industries. But you also need some people who've got those old craft skills of branch banking. Uh, I think through the GFC we learned that there's nothing like having a few experienced bankers on the board of a bank. Yeah, right. Some banks... Really, it got rid of bankers from their boards, uh, and I think we saw some of the implications of that. So you want a broad, you want a range of people with a different array of skills. Banking is part of it, what you want to have. Technology is part of what you want to have. Connection with community is part of what you want to have. But mostly, you need common sense. People being grounded in the day to day ambitions of our customers and our stakeholders
1: how do you keep yourself informed with the market Robert
0: oh I read a lot I suppose I try to be involved in a a lot of different things around uh, different places you'd be foolish to think that you're ever really up to date with all this stuff it's it's a constant struggle
1: so is the big worry on the mind is it really technology Robert is that the worry
0: I think in today's set of problems, coping with the big changes in technology, customer expectations in their, in the way they interact with you via technology, they're the big issues that we're all, all getting to grips with at the moment. In a world where consumers have been trained by Amazon and Google to expect a level of seamless service uh, As I said, anywhere, anytime, with complete knowledge is ways that many industries are struggling to cope with.
1: What advice would you give those new graduates coming out of university or what advice would you give those uh, mums and dads to give to their kids who are going to university? Would you study technology more so these days? Would you study mathematics? Would you study law? Uh,
0: Well, I I think you need, you know, in everything you need... Some, some deep technical expertise, but you also need the perspective of the generalist. Uh, no, none of us can afford to be specialists for too long. Uh, specialists are, as an old professor of mine once said, tangents to the circle of reality, where um, uh, if you're gonna do a job, certainly if you're gonna do a job as a director, a non-executive director of an organisation like a bank, but not just a bank. Any any organisation that's coping with all this change that's going on in society. If you're going to be someone who's going to contribute usefully as a senior executive one of one of these institutions, what you need is a broad base. Uh, so you need to work from your technical expertise, but acquire a broad set of skills across a whole range of things to be able to contribute usefully. Is banking still as much fun as it used to be, Robert? Oh, I think banking's absolutely absolutely fascinating at the moment as we cope with all this change. Uh, the centrality of banking to the day-to-day lives of people has only become more important. It used to be, you know, 20 or 30 years ago that, that you could conduct a lot of your life without really having to worry about your relationship with a bank and that's just not true anymore um, banks and your role with banks is really important to everything that you do you know you, you now use your phone to pay for uh, cups of coffee uh, and you know that that's information that's then stored somewhere and able to be used somewhere so banking is even more important than it was in the in the lives of people, so no banking is a fascinating. Uh, the role of of the economy of financial services is absolutely central to the, to life. So no, it's a it's a a really how how it's going to play its way out in this technological revolution we're all going through is why it's so interesting. And is it going to be utility, or is it going to be more than that? It'll be a bit of both. There'll be the role for the entrepreneurs. For the smart thinkers, but on the other hand, it's also a fundamental utility type t- function in the economy. Both things, Robert. If you were to look back all those years ago, when you started in the banking
1: sector, would you? Uh, what advice would you give that young Robert Hanson all those years ago?
0: Well, I think uh, you know, get involved in an organisation that you think is doing something that's useful. Do it because there is something of real value that you'll think is being uh, deliver. Don't rely on others to solve the problems for you. Don't rely on governments. Don't rely on regulators. Be self-sufficient, uh, but do something that you think is important.
2: Robert, thanks for joining us today. It's been a terrific conversation. You've been listening to No Limitations. <music>